0: Good morning, church. How are you doing? I'll explain later, in case you're wondering. Well, good morning. My name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet, it's good to see you. Uh, Usually, I get to stand over here and lead us in singing, uh, but week in and week out, my greatest passion is to point us to Jesus, to point us to who he is and what he's done, remind us of that, and remind us that Jesus did it all for us so that we might find rest and joy in his work and what he's done for us. And we might turn to worship him because he's worthy of it all. And today I get to do that through teaching from God's word. So I'm excited to share with you as we finish up our series through storms. And uh, over the past three, three weeks, we've looked at several different ones. Today we'll be looking at Acts 27, if you want to go ahead and turn there now. And if you don't have a Bible, as always, we have tables in the entrances with Bibles on them, and you're welcome to take one of those and use those. Uh, If you happen to forget your Bible at home, we just ask that you put it back at the end of the service so we can have them for someone who needs it next week. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, keep it. It's our gift to you. Now, over the last three weeks, we've gone through storms as a call to get in the boat from Noah, and storms as a call to return to God in Jonah, and then storms as a reminder that Jesus is in the boat with us on the Sea of Galilee. And today we're looking at how God uses storms for our good and for his glory. First, I want to define for us what we're talking about with storms. We're not talking about the kind of storm that a husband brings on himself when he says something really stupid to his wife, right? He brought that on himself and he deserves it. So uh, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about are the unexpected storms of life, like the unexpected loss of a job, an unplanned move, a surprise diagnosis, struggling with questions of what am I supposed to do with my life, long seasons of waiting for answers from God, seasons of loss, losing loved ones, when a spouse decides to leave unexpectedly. Those days when all of our plans and our hopes and our dreams are turned upside down, and we're left in the dark, and we're wondering, how are we getting out of this? How will we get through this? That's what we're looking at. Now, in my own life, storms have had a pretty significant impact. And for my wife and I, Diane, one particular storm changed everything. And back in July of 2005, we were just finishing up our second year of marriage. And we, during that time, had been serving as missionaries with the North American Mission Board in Gainesville, Florida, to the University of Florida. And my wife was a seminal, uh, so she wasn't a huge fan of that idea. But, um, but the Lord led us there, and we served there for two years. And part of our agreement, when we finished, was to complete my seminary education on campus. And so, with a lot of prayer and a lot of searching we sensed that the Lord was leading us to New Orleans, Louisiana to finish my studies at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. So in August of 2005, we moved to New Orleans, and we moved into this 1930s quadruplex home, and we were in the upper left-hand apartment of this house. Fast forward four weeks now uh, to our fourth week there. Diane had started her new job, and I had started classes uh, for that first semester, and I was in way over my head. I took classes I probably shouldn't have taken all together. So I was living in the library and we were still unpacking our home. It was just craziness. And so to finish up that first week, we just kind of wanted to unwind and get to know our new neighbors a little bit. So Tyson and Christine, our neighbors, invited us over for dinner and we had a great meal together that Friday night to celebrate. And as we finished up dinner, Christine's mom called and said, hey, have you been paying attention to the weather? And I mean, Diane and I didn't even have our TV plugged in yet. We didn't know what was going on in the world around us. We were just kind of Tunnel vision on what we had in front of us. And so Tyson turned on the TV and there was Hurricane Katrina in the Gulf of Mexico, a category two hurricane headed straight for New Orleans. Now, having lived in Florida and knowing that we currently lived in a bowl, we knew we needed to evacuate. And so uh, we talked with Tyson and Christine and they had family in Baton Rouge and they invited us to go with them to Baton Rouge. And so we agreed to get out of there by noon on Saturday. And so Saturday morning we woke up. We grabbed a couple of my guitars, our cat, the photo albums that we could find, and some work clothes, and we packed them into our Honda Civic. And we left at noon on Saturday. We drove past the Superdome, and we went west to Baton Rouge. Now, Sunday morning, 7 a.m., Katrina was a category five hurricane. With winds of 175 miles per hour, And gusts up to 190 miles per hour. And things got a lot more serious for us. We knew we had to get further away than Baton Rouge just for the sake of our family so they would know we were okay because you know, cell phones and everything get knocked out and you don't know if someone's safe or not. And so we knew we had to get further away than Baton Rouge. So we drove north that Sunday night. And I remember distinctly our car, our conversation in that car that evening as we drove. And it was one that, changed our marriage, I believe. We looked at everything that was in that car. We looked at each other and we thought of everything that we had to leave behind in New Orleans. And for all intents and purposes, we just had to consider that stuff is gone because a category five hurricane is catastrophic. And so we said, this is it. Everything we have is in this car right here. Everything we need is right here. Everything that's important is right here we have each other, we're safe, and the Lord is with us. So whatever he does in these next few months, we're going to be okay. We don't know how it's going to look. We don't know how it's going to work out, but we're going to be okay. We believed that he was going to see us through. And you know, we were still newlyweds by most people's definition, two years into our marriage. But in that moment, our faith, our priorities, everything was crystal clear. We knew what was most important, And we had seen over our two years just how the Lord has been faithful and how he had provided all along the way. And we knew that he wasn't going to stop now. And when I look to the scripture, you know, I see lots of people who have gone before us, who have endured storms, who have endured suffering and trials. So we know that we're not alone when we look to the scripture. And one of those is Paul. Paul endured a lot of suffering in his life. Bible says that he was chosen to suffer much for the sake of Jesus. So when we look to his life, and we look to Acts 27 in particular, we see one of the great accounts of the storms that Paul endured. And this is where he was shipwrecked. And just a few months ago, Joe walked us through this account. And I just want to remind us of the details. But you can go back and read Acts 27 and 28 in full Uh, later on. I encourage you to do that just to remind yourself of what happened. But Paul was certain that God wanted him to get to Rome. Okay? He knew that God wanted him there. In Acts twenty three, eleven, God told him so directly. And eventually Paul was a prisoner on a ship headed for Rome. They left Judea, they sailed up around the Mediterranean coast and down to the island of Crete, and then they tried to push a little bit further, and the entire time so far the wind had been against them, and the storm and the trip took a lot longer than they planned. But they tried to just get a little bit further before winter. And that's when the wind turned south and it blew them out to sea. And eventually things became hopeless and desperate because they just couldn't see a way that they'd be saved in the midst of this storm. And it was in the face of that situation that Paul said this to the crew. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. For two weeks, they were being blown further and further out to sea. Eventually, some of the sailors tried to find their own way out and lower the lifeboat to escape. But Paul warned them, if you do that, we're all going to die. You're not going to survive. So they cut away the lifeboat and let it float away. And the next morning, they ran aground on a reef, and the waves started destroying the boat, so they had to abandon ship and swim for the shore. And as they arrived on the shore, Luke says that the the native people were unusually kind to them, and they kindled a fire for them because it was wet and cold and raining, and so they were trying to take care of this crew as they swam ashore. And Paul wanted to contribute and help out, so he grabbed some sticks and threw them into the fire, and as he did so, this guy latched onto his hand. Now, can you imagine that picture, just Paul standing there now with a viper hanging from his hand, and the native people's reaction was priceless, and this is my paraphrase. Yep, he's definitely a murderer, right? And then Paul shook, shook, shook it off into the fire, and then next, their reaction was even better, I think. Okay, maybe he's a god. You know that 's our natural conclusion: to Go from murderer to God in an instant, right? <laughs> but he didn 't fall down dead. they 'd seen people swell up and fall down dead from this viper bite, and Paul didn 't do that, so they believed something was special about him, and that gave Paul the opportunity to heal the father of the chief of that entire people on that island. And then when their father was healed, everyone else who was sick on that island came to Paul and he healed them as well. And they stayed on that island for three months. And Paul presumably took that opportunity to share the gospel with that entire people who had never heard the name of Jesus. Now, when we look through this account of this shipwreck and this storm, it's pretty clear that there's a prevailing perspective on this whole thing. Luke writes that uh, the winds were against them. And three times he uses the words with difficulty to describe their journey. It reveals a perspective that many of us hold when we walk through a storm, and that's that storms are against us. And it's easy to feel that way. For one, storms disrupt plans. As we read in Acts twenty three eleven. Paul knew that God wanted him in Rome, that he was heading that way, that God's will was for him to be in Rome. So you can be in the center of God's will doing exactly what the Lord wants you to be doing, and storms still get in the way. They still redirect our course, take us places we didn't think we would go. They still slow down the journey, make things take longer than we thought they would. It's especially frustrating for you planners out there. I mean, how could God be involved in something so irritating, right? Change of plans. Storms also bring us to the end of our own abilities. And you read that in Acts 27:15. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Storms make us feel powerless and helpless. When I was in high school, I attempted to learn to surf, uh, living in Florida. So we went to the Atlantic coast and went to some of the beaches there and tried to learn to surf. And by all accounts, the day that we chose to learn to surf was the worst day in surfing history. They canceled a surfing tournament. The pros couldn't even surf on that day, and so we were attempting. It was pretty amusing. Anyway, so, so this particular day, I'm on my board trying to trying to surf, and the rip current just keeps taking me further and further and further out into the Atlantic Ocean. And I remember at one point, no matter how hard I paddled, just being pushed away and feeling like, all right, that's it. See you guys. Find me some other time, you know. Uh, we were miles away from one another by this point, how far we had gotten pushed out, and I could barely see them, anybody on the shore. I mean, it was crazy. And storms do that to us. They make us feel helpless and humble And show us how small we are. They tell us that you can't. They frustrate our best efforts and leave us questioning and searching for answers. Storms also bring uncertainty, doubt, and fear. It's clear in Acts 27.20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now think about this. This is Luke writing this. The same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and who wrote the book of Acts. Who had been with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. Who had seen God do amazing things. Who had seen God heal people. And even he was losing hope. Storms cloud our vision. We can't see a way that God could possibly have a plan at work. We start to doubt his goodness. We start to forget what we know about him and what we've seen him do in the past. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? And when we get afraid like that, we start to try and find our own way out of the situation. Just like those sailors who lowered the lifeboat, right? We try to find our way around the system. And in the process, we risk a lot. Those sailors risk destroying everybody on that ship by doing so. That is the picture when we view storms as against us. But it's apparent from the whole passage as well that Paul viewed this whole thing differently than anybody else. Paul was like a rock amidst all this chaos of this storm. He was the one who was encouraging. He was the one who was saying, we're going to be all right. We're going to make it. He was the one who was comforting those who were afraid. And as been preparing for this. I've been trying to think of a way to explain the difference. Like, why is Paul so different, even though they're facing the same situation? And the thing that came to mind is one of my hobbies. Uh, I've kind of become a fan of edge tools, like knives and axes, over the last decade or so. And uh, yes, I'm a knife geek. I apologize. Um, and uh, it's a very dumb question around the staff to ask Bill if he has a knife on him. So I usually have that because it's very useful. Anyway, um, But in the process, I've sharpened hundreds of edges and learned lots of things along the way and really enjoyed developing that particular skill. And one of the things, one of the most significant things that I've learned is that anything that can sharpen an edge can also damage it and vice versa. And that's because it requires something harder than the steel of the edge to change it. And when you are sharpening an edge, you're actually removing microscopic pieces of the hardened steel until you refine it into a point. So materials like stone and rock and ceramic, cardboard, paper, even uh, cinder block can be used to refine an edge, to shape it up into the right thing. But if you approach those things from the wrong angle and head on, like when you are chopping wood and you get into the dirt and you hit the rocks, it will chip the edge out and damage it. And storms are the same way for us. They're harder than us. And we never leave unscathed. We don't come through with everything intact. We end up having to lose something in the midst of the storm. But if we face them like everybody else on that ship and view storms as against us, they will wreck us and ruin us. But if we view them like Paul and approach him with the right angle, we will be refined and sharpened. And we'll be very useful for God's kingdom in the end. So how did Paul approach storms? Why did he view it so differently? Let's turn to Romans eight twenty eight through 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this passage is one of the greatest sources of hope and encouragement for believers found in all the Bible. I would make the case that maybe Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I encourage you to go read it when you have a chance. We're not going to have time to go through the whole thing together today. But what is Paul telling us here? He's telling us that storms are for us. That's a very different view than those, the rest of that crew on that ship. Storms, suffering, and trials in this life are for us because God is for us. And we see right off the bat that God is working all things together for our good. He is working through storms for our good. In verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So the first question is, how do all things work together for good? I mean, they don't magically just turn out right, right? Now, God is at work in all the circumstances of our life for good. And notice that he doesn't say some things. Paul says all things work together for good. Douglas Moo says this, anything that is a part of this life, even our sins, by God's grace, contribute toward good. God is sovereignly at work, guiding and directing all the circumstances of our life for our good. Now, what does he mean when he says for good, right? He's not just talking about the good life like we might normally define it here in the West, but he's talking about good on God's terms. He's talking about the complete work of our salvation from beginning to end for God's glory. And when God is glorified, we get to participate in that glory, share in that glory, and that's good for us as well. Now, throughout the New Testament, Paul talks about salvation in three ways. He says, you have been saved, which is the idea of justification. The moment you believe in the finished work of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection for your salvation, and you are declared righteous in Christ. That's justification. And then he says, at the end, you will be saved. It's that moment that we are resurrected with Christ, raised together with him, and given new glorified bodies and made new in his presence sharing in the glory of God. And then everything else in between that process of beginning to end is you are being saved. It's the way Paul describes it. That's the process of sanctification. And that's a process. The other two are moments in time. But this is a process, being made more and more like Jesus, being made more holy, being made more like him in character. Anything, Paul says, that contributes to that process from beginning to end is good even if it hurts, even if it's painful or hard. That's the ultimate definition of our good. And Paul points out who this is for. He says it's for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. The love God is on our end, and it's not some conditional thing like when we're not feeling especially loving that God's no longer working things together for good. That's not what he's saying. If you are a believer in Christ, you love God. First John says it. You love God and you love others. That is an indication that you are in Christ, that you are born again. It's an internal direction of our hearts towards God. It's not like a moment-by-moment decision, but we love God. And then on the other end, those who are called according to his purpose, that's God's side of the relationship. He has called us into relationship with him for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, I'm glad you asked. In the next verse, he tells us, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, so let's start there. Foreknew. Knowledge in the Bible, when we talk about this, has kind of got this Old Testament idea of knowledge. It's not just knowing something about somebody else, but it's a relational kind of knowing, a loving kind of knowing. He knew us. Not knew about us, but he knew us beforehand. And that idea of predestined is simply he chose beforehand that's the simplest way to understand that word even though we can get into a lot of debates and arguments about that it means he chose beforehand what did he choose beforehand that we might be conformed to the image of his son god is working through storms to conform us to the image of jesus and that is the point That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, this is something that is not optional for believers. This is something we are experiencing even now as we sit in this room. God is at work, shaping us and molding us into the image of Jesus, step by step, moment by moment. And one day it's going to happen, like it or not. We can go kicking and screaming, or we can trust God in the process. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is going to happen, believer. And suffering is part of that process. Going on to verse 30, Paul says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now look at that last word. It seems out of place, doesn't it? The other three clearly happened in the past, called, predestined, and then justified. Those are all past tense ideas, but glorified. We haven't experienced the resurrection yet, have we? We haven't been glorified together with Christ yet. But Paul is so certain of its reality, so sure that from God's perspective, it's already done. It is a certain reality for believers. It's what we call the already, but not yet. And the best way I can explain that is kind of like school. And the difference between completion and graduation. And when you complete your degree, you finish all the requirements for your courses, everything's done, you have no more work to do, but until you walk across that stage and get the diploma, it's not officially official for everybody else. It's kind of the way it is for us. Christ Jesus has completed all the work of redemption for us. It is finished. All that's required for our salvation is done but we have yet to walk across that stage and receive that diploma for everybody else to know that it's done, done. And one day we will see that. That's a certain reality that is coming for us. Earlier in Romans 8, verses 16 to 17, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Did you catch that? Suffering is part of the plan. Suffering puts us on Jesus' team. It is an honor to be counted worthy to suffer with Christ. Because Christ suffered in our place for our redemption, for the sake of this world. It's because Jesus suffered that he was glorified. Philippians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that directly. Because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, lays out the four major images of God's love for us in the Bible. And one of those is the love of an artist for his work of art, citing Jeremiah 18. And there are other places, The Builder and the Stones, Ephesians 2.10. And this idea, C.S. Lewis says, is not like a little thumbnail sketch that an artist makes on a napkin and hands to a kid and says, here you go, buddy. It's not perfect, but I'll let it go. It's fine. He's not going to care. right?" That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the great work of this artist's life. The one which he will give endless trouble for and take endless trouble to have make it perfect to make it have a certain kind of character and he will not rest until it's done and he says now imagine if that painting was aware of this process and after being erased and scraped and started over for the 10th time saying enough already i'm done i'm good the way i am wishing they were just that little thumbnail sketch handed that kid on a napkin wishing that were over with in a minute but c.s lewis says in that moment we're not asking for more love but for less. We're asking God to care less about us, care less about our character. Suffering is for our good, for our sake, but it's also for the sake of the world around us. See, storms took Paul places he never would have gone otherwise. That shipwreck, that viper bite gave him credibility as he shared the gospel with these people. They listened to him because of what he went through. He had a story to tell. And that's what we see in Acts 28 as he arrived there. Storms advance the gospel. God uses storms to further his message around the world. When we go through storms, God grows our faith. God strengthens us. God gives us a story to tell about what he has done. There's someone in this world who needs to hear your story of enduring a storm. And that is going to give you the opportunity to proclaim the gospel in their lives as well. To show that God is faithful. Which is what the next point is. God is faithful through storms. He comes through. How do we know that? In verses 31 to 39 in Romans, we're not going to read it again, all of it, but we see that God's love will not fail no matter what we face. And Paul says, how do we know this? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says, look to the cross. The cross is the proof. The cross of Jesus is the greatest price that he could have paid for us, the greatest sacrifice that he could make for us, the greatest demonstration of his love for us. Everything else is small by comparison. The cross is the greatest proof of God's love for us. So when we doubt, when we fear, when we're not sure what's going to happen, look to the cross. Remember the cross, because that says it all. That is the proof John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 tell us it's the proof, the demonstration of God's love for us. And that's how we know his love's not going to fail. Everything else, death even, is small by comparison. God's love will not fail on us. We will not be separated from his love. And that truth is what enabled Paul to stand like a rock in the face of the storm. So in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, we went north and we ended up in southern Illinois at the home of my mother-in-law. And we kind of waited as news came. And we watched TV reports and uh, Google Earth made a pass over New Orleans to show where the flooding was. And we saw our home with five foot of water in it in our neighborhood. We saw reports of the Superdome and the chaos and the looters and all the stuff that was going on in New Orleans. And we were really confused and really wondering, okay, God, what are you doing? And we clearly knew that you wanted us there, and now we don't even have a place to live there. There's nowhere to live. There's nowhere to go. We don't know what we're doing. From there, the Lord provided. He gave us, uh, through my best friend, he got us jobs at uh, an insurance company in Jacksonville, Florida, where ironically we were taking claims calls for Katrina. We stayed in my best friend's guest room for six months there in Jacksonville and slept on an airbed while we tried to figure out what we were doing next. And from there we actually got back to New Orleans around Thanksgiving time. There's still no power, still no water, Uh, So my friend Mark and my brother Paul, we drove in there first thing in the morning with a moving truck that we got from Mobile, Alabama. We loaded up our house, boxed up everything that we could before sundown and got out before the looters started going again. But we still at that point didn't have a place to go. We just put it in storage and kind of waited some more. But then in January, the Lord led us to Lakeland, Florida, where he put me back to work as a worship pastor in a local church. It was on that church staff that I met Brett Durbin, who started Trash Mountain Project. It was Brett Durbin who connected us with Fellowship Bible Church when we were in the midst of another kind of storm. I wouldn't be standing here with you today if it weren't for that hurricane. There's no way. There's no way I would be here. God provided relationships and perfectly timed paychecks and provisions and clothing. Everything we needed along the way, right on time. God is faithful. And his love never fails. So every year on August 29th, which was this past Monday, Diane and I celebrate. God's faithfulness. We tell our kids what the Lord has done. We tell him how he, tell them how he came through, how he provided everything we needed, how he made a way where there was no other way. How he shaped us and grew our faith in that process. You might not see it right now, but God is making a way through whatever storm you're facing right now. And you'll be able to look back like we can now, 11 years, and see how step by step God led us through to where we are now i promise you you may not always have the answers right in the midst of things but help is on the way the lord is seeing you through and he's working for your good he is making you more like jesus we got to let go of all those things that we cling to like comfort and safety and security and cling only to jesus because he's the only one who's going to see us through he is our highest good so what does it look like when we talk about faith? And we say, yeah, I believe that that stuff's true, Bill. But what does that mean? What does faith, what does trusting God look like? Well, there's a man named Charles Blondine. And he was a tightrope walker in the 1800s. And on September 14th of 1860, he stretched a tightrope across Niagara Falls that was 160 feet above the falls. And this man was ridiculous. People came from both sides of the border to come watch him do his thing. He went across in a sack, like a sack race, across this tightrope and back. He went across on stilts, which I can't even fathom. He went across on a bicycle, and then he went across with a stove, came back to the middle, cooked an omelet, and had breakfast in the middle of this rope. The guy was crazy. But then he took a wheelbarrow, and he put a sack of potatoes in it, and he walked across this rope, and you see a picture of that there. Uh, He walked across this wheelbarrow, and then walked back. And he got back to the other side where the crowd was waiting and he said, Who believes I could take someone across in this wheelbarrow? And everybody's like, Oh man, you could totally do that. You are amazing, you can do anything after all we've seen. We believe you can do it. He's like, Alright, who's getting in? <laughs> now it's kind of a silly example, like we're not none of us would get in that wheelbarrow, right? Not doing it. But that's the difference between faith and believe just saying I believe getting in the wheelbarrow. Jesus, I don't know what the other end of this holds for me. I don't know what the road is going to look like. I don't know how scary it's going to be, but I trust you no matter what. I am yours. Have your way in my life. Make me more like Jesus. That is the goal. That's what I want. I want what you want, Lord Jesus. Take me. I'm yours. There's a difference between just saying, yeah, it's going to work out, and I believe it. I don't know how, but I believe it. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I trust you, Jesus. Jesus. That's the kind of faith that Paul had. That's the kind of faith we need in storms in order to be sharpened and refined and not wrecked and ruined. And that's my prayer for us this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please give us faith. Help us to trust you more. God, we want to be made like you. We want to be conformed into your image. Lord, we know that that's coming for us believers, God. So we want to trust you more in the face of storms, God. We want to be refined and sharpened through storms and not ruined. So, Lord, help us to trust you as we walk through the storms that we're in right now. God, I pray that you'd bring comfort and hope to those who are currently in the midst of a storm. God, there. It feels like we're in the darkness. It feels like we don't know the way out sometimes, but God, you are working your plan and help us to trust you and know that you know best even when we can't see the answers. Give us faith, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.